0: Welcome. You are listening to Intentional Conversations from Nika White Consulting, an encore presentation of our weekly podcast where we intersect diversity, equity, and inclusion with leadership and business. Let the conversation begin. I'm super excited for you all to be in community and conversation with Mino Papaya. She is an award-winning author, a keynote speaker, and equity strategist. She founded Brevity & Wit, I love that name, a strategy and design firm that helps organizations achieve the change they want to see in the world. Her first book, Equity, How to Design Organizations Where Everyone Thrives, was awarded the 2022 Terry McAdam Book Award for the book Most Likely to Change the Way Nonprofit Professionals Work. She is happiest when sharing her infectious enthusiasm for diversity, equity, and inclusion with audiences all around the world. So I'm going to stop sharing my screen right now, and I am going to um, spotlight Um, My guest co-host today, I'm going to add her right now, and I want you all to do me a huge favor. I always ask this every week because I think that our co-hosts are all deserving of our gratitude, but find those emojis, find those reactions, those words of affirmation, go to the chat, to the comment section, and let's let our guest co-host Nino know how much we are appreciative of her being here with us today. Thank you so much. I have been looking forward to this conversation, and I'm going to give you a chance to, of course, greet this audience in your own way, but there is one thing that we often ask for our guest co-hosts to do, and that is to share with us something about yourself that we would not know from reading your bio, as I just did, or from looking and reading your LinkedIn profile. So let us know what you would like to share, and welcome.
1: Thank you. Hi. So Dr. White, thank you so much for having me on your show. Um, what a professional operation you have going here. This is really <laughs> impressive. <laughs> uh, so I'm excited to be here. Thank you. Ha- thank you so much. Um so interesting fact about me. So uh, well, wh- something that well, some people know this. You may you may know this if you read my book, but if you haven't, then you wouldn't. So that's a good thing. So I actually live in a multi-generational home. I live with, me and my husband live with my parents and my brother, Um, and uh, it works well in some ways. It's challenging in others, but um, particularly when you're trying to stop um, the effects of intergenerational trauma, it can get a little complicated. But I really like it, and I think it is a, a more sustainable family dynamic than the nuclear family and what we've been led to believe. Um, about boundaries and how families are supposed to be made or designed. Uh, You know, for most of human history, people have lived in multi-generational settings. And I think there's something really healing and sustainable about it that I like.
0: I so love that. And so I'm going to get to some of our, our prepared questions. But again, for those who are familiar with this platform, we are very fluid here. So I want to lean into that a bit, Mino, because I feel like there's so much to unpack that would... This audience would really gain value from understanding more about. Um, I love this idea of um, this, you know, the extended family dwelling together under the same roof. And I know that it oftentimes is a part of the culture of different, you know, populations. And but what you said um, about it, it helps us to really think more broadly about how we are defining family. Mm-hmm. That is critical and it's because one of the conversations I've had you know, over the, the most recent years as, as organizations have tried to think more intently about inclusion as they're developing their policies within the organizations is how are we defining family? And I'll give you one key example. You know, when you talk about um, bereavement leave, right, oftentimes it's written into policies that, you know, immediate family member and immediate for a lot of people would be maybe a spouse, maybe a child, right? But when you have these, you know, multi-generational family homes, um, that that family unit, that family definition is a bit broader. And so um, those are the types of conversations that um, I have had But I think it's really enlightening for a lot of people that may not even have that perspective. And so I just want to give you a moment to lean into that and share whatever is coming up for you.
1: Yeah, I mean, I talk about this in my book when we try to design for equity, that we have to question some of the assumptions that we make in that and the assumption of how we define family. Uh, You know, the example I give is that, you know, in my late 20s, uh, I tried to get my brother on my health insurance. And... I I couldn't like in order to get him on our on my health insurance at the age of like 28 we would have to say that like he couldn't work he'd have to file for disability um and if he ever made more than $2000 a month he would get knocked off right and we don't think about that but like but if we really think about this deeply I could marry a stranger of any gender put them on my health insurance. They could go on and make a million dollars and still be on my health insurance.
0: Yeah, good point. And
1: that's, and that's because we define family in this country by sexual relationship or financial dependence. Mm. Yeah. My My brother is my first degree blood relative, but yeah. that there's no like legal rights to give him the, the benefit of being my family member.
0: yeah. Yeah, I love that. You know, another parallel that I'll draw here that is um, not not exactly the same, but certainly conceptually, I think that is part of this broader conversation is even when we think about um, parental leave, right? You know, it mm-hmm. used to be all about maternal leave, then it went to parental leave, and then we mm-hmm. had to think about well, now when we or you know, focusing on parental leave, are we talking about those who have just birthed kids directly, or are we talking about those who adopt, those who foster? Yeah. I mean, so it's it the conversation certainly needs to be broadened beyond what maybe um, it has traditionally been known known as. And so, I love the idea of challenging people to interrogate their assumptions. I think that's a really important uh, point that we're kind of launching out this show with today. So, thank you. Okay, so congratulations on the success of your book, baby. Yeah. <laughs> I use that language a lot because, you know, sometimes it even takes more than nine months to, to birth a book. Yeah. I know for me, it was more than nine months. And it really does feel like you are presenting something to the world that you're so proud of. But yet and still, there are all these range of emotions. Will they like it? Will it resonate? Does it, does it say all the things it needs to say? And so I don't know about you, but I certainly went through those range of emotions. Um, but again, I want to just, I'm going to give the title again, and then we're going to place it actually into the chat because I want you all to um, get this book. Um, and and to read it. And there's also a special offering and discount code that Meenal is making available. And so we'll share that in the chat as well. But again, the title is Equity, How to Design Organizations Where Everyone Thrives, right? So I want you to share with this audience what inspired you to delve into the topic of designing equitable organizations. And I want you to even take it a step further because I think that the language of designing is, is very intentional. And so I want you to put some greater context around, you know, what does it mean to design equitable organizations versus just value and equity in the organization?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's a really good question. I mean, um, I think to date, my book is the only book on equity in the workplace. You know, like I think there's been a lot of conversations about inclusion, and people assume that equity can just get lumped in really easily. But equity is quite different from inclusion. Uh, I yeah. think inclusion is really about how people feel and psychological safety, and it manifests a lot in the interpersonal dynamics in an organization. Equity is about systems, yeah, and things that can make our head hurt, like policies and procedures and systems design. And I think one of the misconceptions, one of the profound um, myths in our society, particularly American society, is the world is the way it is because that's just how it naturally evolved. And that's not true. Like there were were people in power who very intentionally designed for the outcomes that we have, right? So what do I mean by that? And there's a lot of stories and examples I give in the book, but the most succinct one is probably the fact that in this country, we defined race um, for black people, saying that if you had um one drop of so-called Negro blood, you would be considered yeah. black. Right. When we but for Native Americans, for the indigenous people of this country, we mm-hmm. created this artificial thing called blood quantum levels that said that you had to have 1 16th um, indigenous blood to be considered native American. Now, why is that? Mm-hmm. That's because in article one of the constitution, we, the founding fathers committed to providing services in perpetuity for the indigenous people of this country. So the minute you say it's one drop, then you have a lot of people you have to take care of. But if you make this cutoff of 1 you start to decimate the population over generations. Yeah. And then we had slavery and by saying one drop, you were you were allowed to grow a free labor population easily. And so we oh, racialized so one group expansively yes. and we racialized another group subtractively. And that is how we've gotten to where we are. That was designed. That was not evolution. Yeah. That's not happenstance, that was intentional design for oppression, right? Yeah. And we have to use the same level of thinking and systems thinking and intention if we want to design for equity.
0: That is so good. Um, I don't know if I've ever heard it expressed in that way. And it really has given me pause. I think it's something that we all need to spend some time um. Just reflecting on because it does place great emphasis on that we're designed and our systems were not designed for parity and Mm -hmm. uh, equity and equality. And so I often talk about you know there is very much a distinction between all the terms diversity, Mm -hmm. equity, and inclusion belong to all the terms. And um, to your point about how sometimes equity does not truly find its way into the conversation in terms of in practice and being actualized. I often challenge practitioners in this work that if we aren't driving towards equity, are we really doing the work right? And so I love that you are solely focused on the the equity piece. I think that's critically I think that's critically important. So um, what makes your book? And you've touched on this a little bit, but I want to go a little bit deeper into this because I find that there's a lot of of text and content and resources abound right now just on this broad topic. But you clearly said that you believe there is something really unique about your book and how you talk about you know, equity and how it is differentiated from other equity literature. So let's hone in on that a bit more.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that, I mean, listen, if I'm very honest, I have heard DEI practitioners define equity wrong. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay <laughs> like I, I think I once heard somebody say it's a feeling I was like it has nothing to do with feelings oh, not no, yeah like it's yeah not, you know yeah and, and so I think that's why I wanted to focus on it but I also the design approach you know like I, I you know I have some a, a bit of a background in human-centered design is really important um, and this is what I learned from my mentor uh, Dr. Janetta Betch-Cole is Um, you have to design for how humans are, not how you think they should be.
0: Yeah, that's good.
1: Yeah. And I am the most, I think at fault of having this idealism of like, you know, that human being people will rise to the better angels of their nature every time and they won't. And so if that's our hope that, and this is where I think I got, why I wanted to focus on equity is because it's not because the interpersonal stuff isn't important. But if we if we think our theory of change is that we are going to wake everybody up and everybody's going to have an elevated consciousness and then we're mm-hmm. going to have a more just world, that yeah. will not scale. Like, have you met people? <laughs> <laughs> have, have you yeah. hung out with your family? Have really? you been under a rock?
0: <laughs> have you been paying attention? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I yeah, that is that is I. I so agree with um with your sentiments there and and you said just you know equity is is really that conduit towards justice and so yeah. You don't create justice by just having people feel a certain way or the rhetoric of, of, you know, the sentiments being expressed. It has to be directly connected to um, the system's change work that leads to to that very impactful, meaningful outcomes that can be sustained. And so uh, I totally agree. Continue, please.
1: No, I mean, that's where the word equity came from, was actually from legal precedents of understanding that the letter of the law does not suffice for justice. Yeah. You know, it comes from England from understanding that you need to have something more than the letter of the law for there to be justice, that some justice needs to be equitable. When you have one party that has no money suing a party that has a lot of money, it cannot simply be like an even split of the bills. Right. Like th- this doesn't make sense. And that's where it came from. And so, um, you know, I-, I think it's really important to um you know, understand that there's, there's one, there's going to be a difference between following the letter of the law and achieving justice, but two, that we um, have to think beyond, this is just about people being nice or good. Right. You oh, know?
0: absolutely. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and so if you're like me or if I'm like you, whichever one, I think you're both probably um, the, the same, um, you probably also get frustrated by the conflation of equity being synonymous with equality. So speak speak on that.
1: <laughs> yes. So so it's not synonymous. and um, and I talk a lot in the book about that um, you know, but but so here's the thing though, I also don't think we should throw out equality. Oh, I, you're, I so agree.
0: Yes, absolutely. It has this purpose. They're interconnected for a reason, but they're not the same. And that yeah. distinction makes all the difference in really seeing equity and justice actualize.
1: Yeah. And so I say that like e- equality is where everybody gets the same thing. Equity yeah. is where everybody gets what they need in yeah. order to contribute their strengths and in order to have equal access to opportunity and human rights. And the example I often give is marriage equality in the gay community, that in the late 90s and the early 2000s, um, there was a push amongst a lot of gay rights groups for uh, civil unions as a legal protection for same-sex marriage. But then they got together in like the mid-2000s and decided that if they didn't go for marriage equality, they would have the legal precedent for separate and unequal. Protection mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so they realized they had to go for marriage equality, yeah, in order to have equal human rights and equal access to benefits, yeah. and so yeah. it's it, you, I often say equality, equity and equality are opposite sides of the same coin of justice. <laughs> and knowing whether a problem or a challenge requires an equitable solution or an equal solution, takes a significant amount of wisdom and discernment um it takes really a deep understanding of the problem and the ability to understand the ripple effects of a solution
0: Uh Uh and that
1: requires slowing down and so when people ask well why haven't we gotten places i was like because this work is hard and i don't think we understand all our problems deeply enough yeah (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. The power of the pause, slowing down certainly can benefit us in many ways. But I also will say that it creates significant tension points because there are certain individuals to say, well, slowing down. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of years Mm -hmm. of systemic oppression and racism. And so, I mean, how much longer do we have to wait? (laughs) We're ready to kind of see the change really, you know, be actualized. Um, And so what, what do you say to that?
1: So my response to that is very comes very much from eastern philosophy and my background being indian in that um if you think about this like how much do we have to wait until we get this end state of justice you will always be disappointed yeah good point that's not the game yeah this is an point. infinite game right um The world evolves when you have, you know, I talk about in my book how the Black Civil Rights Movement advocated for the passage of the Immigration and Naturalization Act of 1965, Mm -hmm. which changed how we gave out visas. Before 1965, visas and green cards were allocated to preserve the homogeneity of North America, meaning the white majority. After 1965, they were given to preserve family ties and to meet labor needs which is how a lot of Asians, like myself, got to this country. Like my parents came here and I was the first generation born here. However, even in that act of equity and inclusion, the system evolved and certain inequities got built in, in that the U.S. immigration system began to take advantage of socialized education in other countries like India to meet Mm -hmm. their labor needs. So my mm. parents who are relatively poor, went to med school for they said like 50 dollars a semester. Mm. And then they get to come here with their debt-free medical degrees and do really well. and that's how that's how the model minority myth got built.
0: yeah, yeah. and then,
1: and and they are comparing the Asian experience that is based on socialized education, which is not something that is pr- provided to poor black and brown people in this country. Yeah. And if it was, I think you would have just as many people with poor parents and dark skin that become doctors and lawyers and engineers as you do in the Indian diaspora. And yeah. so, we have to understand that the game is not when are we going to hit this state of equality and justice for all? We're we're never going to hit that state. Right? Yeah. The world moves, the pendulum swings, and the question is how are you going to spend your time on earth? Yeah. Are you going to spend it planting seeds for more justice and equality and inclusion for future generations, or are you going to spend it tearing it down?
0: Yeah. You know, that is so rich. I, I feel like we all need to kind of just sit with that um, for a moment. And by the way, the historian in you is shining right now. You're educating <laughs> us. And I love that. You know, I think it's important for us to be able to connect the dots to the historical context of, of you know, normal normal day conversations we're having around this broad and complex topic. Um, and so, yes, I agree with you, Nika. And there's another Nika that's in our community today. She's saying, yes, yeah, so informative. And by the way, the chat is open. So if this is resonating, if there's some interesting tidbits that are being sharing and you have some thoughts around, please use the chat to help extend our conversations. Um, so I wanna talk, I wanna stay here for a moment. I wanna talk about your journey as an equity strategist. Have there been, and I'm sure there has, but I want you to share some of those personal, pivotal moments that influence your understanding or approach to DEI.
1: Mm. I mean, the most pivotal is my relationship with my mentor, uh, Jeanetta Bechcol. Um Yeah, you
0: mentioned the- her name a couple of times. And so yeah. I, yeah, I just want to certainly make sure that we um, are, are leaning into understanding that this was a very important relationship for you to the work and how you show up to this work right now.
1: Well, and I think she, I think it's an important person for every DEI practitioner to know. So for those of you who don't know who Dr. Cole is, um, she was the first Black woman president of Spelman College in 1987, which is late for yeah. a college that is for Black women. Previously, yes. they had all been white women or Black men. Right. Take that in for a second.
0: 1987. Yeah. That's just a few years before 1990.
1: Yeah. Right? Like. So yeah. um, she was also the president of Bennett College for Women. So the only yeah. person to serve as a president of two historically Black colleges for women. Uh, she, and that is, um, those positions allowed her to get access to corporate America and be on boards. And she started to see how DEI was actually being implemented more pragmatically and with better outcomes than it was in higher education. Hmm, um, and uh, she also served as the director of the Smithsonian, but is is basically a DEI icon for those of you who don't know her. Like, w- you know, in terms of honoring our ancestors, she is one that we yeah. all, like we stand on her shoulders. Um, and I, and she, she comes from, a, she's a trained anthropologist. She was an anthropology professor before she was president of a college and has a very, you know, an, an organizational development has its roots in anthropology as well. And so she taught me a lot about how to do this work well, how Mm -hmm. to do this work with a lens on power, with a lens on culture and human nature. Um, It's not just about like whatever ideals you can have. It's about how effective can you be for material improvements on people's lives. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that, you know, I had always been interested in this work, but when I met her, um, I really, you know, she and I have been collaborating on a book that we that we hope to publish, that, that we will publish. We will publish it. You will, you will publish it. We will publish it. Um, but it was like seven lessons from her journey. And I basically just sat at her feet and learned everything I could. Yeah. You know, and she comes from a long, like her history in this country, her family's history goes back many, many generations. She is the descendant of Zephaniah Kingsley, who was an enslaver in Florida, and um, uh, Anna Kingsley, his common law wife, who was a Wolof princess. Uh, her great grandfather was also the first black millionaire of Florida. And so, that history of racism, but then also her ability to be an anthropology anthropologist and be genuinely inclusive of all people. She does not do this work simply for the liberation of herself or people who look like her or have her shared lived experience. She is centered in her experience as a black woman, but is genuinely inclusive of all people, all marginalized people, and is advocating for the eradication of all oppression, not simply the ones that she has suffered from.
0: Yeah. I love that. I I did place just a link into the chat for those who are interested in learning a bit more about coal. But um, the amplification of that last point that you made, I think, is something for all of us who care deeply about humanity. to to model after. And that is, even though we may have our own lived experiences that kind of engenders us to um, those who share similar experiences, I think that when we are cognizant of the injustices that exist across so many different um, communities that are disadvantaged and marginalized and oppressed, um, we certainly should be working in concert to help um, lift up the needs of, of all of those communities. And so thank you for for, for sharing that. Um, I want to talk about Brevity and Wit. Mm-hmm. As I was reading, I was like, I love this name. I love this <laughs> name, Brevity and Wit. And so can you tell us about the inception of Brevity and Wit and sure. how does your strategy and um, design firm empower organizations to foster change in the world?
1: Yeah, well, so I so I had to come up with a really memorable name because when your name is Minil Bopaya, nobody will be able to type it into Google for I couldn't name it Minil Bopaya Consulting. I knew that. And nor did I want to. Uh, and so I was um, you know, I was an English major and you know, was trying to think of words to describe how I how I write love ampersands because I'm a design nerd and a font nerd and so like that so it just sort of came to me many many years ago I held on to the name for years before I actually got incorporated as a company okay. like I was just like no no no, I'm getting this url and just paying year after year until I can get to a company yeah um, so that's how we came into being and it it works for you. we do a lot of work in um, communications around DEI like how to communicate DEI effectively uh, we also do full-service graphic design with a DEI lens. So oh, wow. really looking at dismantling white supremacy and how you choose stock photos, making sure visual design is accessible to lo- people with low vision, um, and, and all of uh, the, the considerations around design, just visual representation, because so much wow. of our stereotypes are through visual representation. Absolutely. And think about how powerful media
0: is in general. So I love that there are individuals that are directly centered and focused in that niche because that is so important.
1: Yeah. And then we also do organization design. So taking this idea of like design and how are you setting up your system and your organizations to get to equitable and inclusive outcomes?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's really
1: good. And, and then the, and then the last thing we do is I often give keynote talks. We have a few other people who will give keynote talks. And that's a great way to start to get these ideas in organizations in a way that's fun, that's, you know, boost morale and, you know, allows somebody from the outside to say the thing that a lot of people on the inside are thinking, right. <laughs> right, exactly.
0: They're like we're thinking it, we're feeling it, but we don't feel safe saying it. So yeah. you come on, outsider, you say this for us. Yes, that is that is often the role that we play, right, as consultants and as partners too, to different organizations. So I particularly um, resonate with the idea of this, you know, full service graphic design mm-hmm. that's centered on the DEI lens, because as someone who spent a a number of years, my background is marketing communications, kind of in the you know the ad agency, mm-hmm. MarkCom world. I am I realize how um are they it's, signing in when you have an appointment. It's such a no sign
1: in. Okay.
0: Just a quick um reminder to please make sure that you are on mute. I'm hearing a conversation going on, but um I know how important that is. And I feel like it's not something that has um at least you know naturally found its way into like the, the curriculum of how in which you show up to that work, right? I mean, keep in mind, you are, you know, there to be smart marketing partners to your, your clients whose consumer constituencies represent diverse America and even global, right, audiences. And so how are we not thinking more intently about building in that DEI lens into into our, um, whatever the product is that we may be designing. So I love that that's something that you focus on. Yeah. Um remind this audience that momentarily I'm going to be shifting and I'm going to give you a chance to present your questions or your contributions to the conversation and you can do so if you are joining us by LinkedIn Live by just going to the comment section and placing your questions there and we will pull that over into our Zoom community or if you're here live a part of our Zoom community you can use the raise hand feature and that lets me know that you are interested and being added to the spotlight and being invited to unmute yourself to share so be percolating and thinking on those questions or curiosities that are coming for you and then momentarily we'll shift. Um, So while you're thinking on your questions, I want to talk about mountain of racial triangulation, right? Mm -hmm. And I want you to walk us through this. Um, It's an image and the dynamics that are at play to it. So explain that to us and let us know why it's important.
1: Yeah. Well, so this gets to what I was saying earlier about, you know, how Asians are, are positioned as a model minority. And what's not being said is like, in contrast to problematic minorities, which are meaning Black and Brown people, mm-hmm. uh, well, Black and Latinx people mainly, and Indigenous people, um, and and yet it's it's a complicated thing. So if we, so can we get the image up? Is that possible? Yeah, I was
0: just going to say I don't want to interrupt you, but um, I'm going to ask my team because we do have a link with an image, and so I'm actually going to. Um, yeah, ask my team to place that into the chat so that you all can source it as as Meenal is talking about it just to give you a, a, a better um, understanding.
1: Yeah, so just if you, and, and I'll talk through it. Like if you think of an X and a Y axis, right? On the Y axis we have, and this is how, this is fabricated. This is not real, right? But this is how society socializes. That there are inferior and superior races, right? And that white supremacy says white people are absolutely the top Black people are at the bottom, and Asians get pegged somewhere in the middle, right? Yeah. However, on the x-axis, there's being an insider and being a foreigner. Mm. And white and Black people get to be seen as insiders in American culture, and Asians are seen as foreigners. Mm. So while Asians may commit... um acts that reinforce um this racist idea of black inferiority yeah black and white people tend to commit acts that reinforce this idea that asians are not really americans
0: Mm. Mm.
1: and the only people that that triangulation serves are white people yeah (laughs) because the minute we start fighting they don't have to expend any effort to keep us down
0: Oh absolutely. So like we're we're pinning against each other. Um this is really good. I want I want you to continue because I, I think that there's a lot to be said and a lot to unpack around just this this notion. So continue please.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, how should I do <laughs> <laughs> I mean, go deeper and to
0: elaborate on that, because, you know, yeah. I think some people in this audience, you know, while we certainly have heard of the model minority, um, yeah. I don't think that we've really contextualized it, uh, maybe with the, the 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 historical understanding that maybe you could bring to this conversation. Yeah. So that's what I'm looking to kind of round out this, this topic with.
1: Yeah. So the way that this shows up is that Fundamentally, we have to understand as human beings, we are all capable of being victim and victimizer. Yeah, absolutely. You can be an Asian person who experienced aggressive racism after 9-11 or after COVID, right, for being Asian, for being South Asian, for being East Asian, right? You can also then engage in anti-Blackness. Right? That, like, you can be the victim of racism and you can be the victimizer who acts according to racist ideology. You can be a Black person who has been um, pitted on this fabricated ladder at the very bottom of racial hierarchy, and you can engage in xenophobic acts yeah. against Asians. You can forget that. Most black people, particularly if they're Christian, can wear a symbol of their religion without fear of getting beaten up for it, Yeah, which is not what Sikh Americans could do after 9-11 when they were wearing a turban. Right. Right. Right? And we have to be able to own both sides of that history.
0: Yeah, I am. I'm placing this note into the chat. But really, what I'm saying is that this is real talk. And I appreciate your ability and boldness and willingness to lean into it, because we need to have these conversations, we need to have these conversations. I mean, I I think that for us to pretend that just because maybe, you know, we are a part of um, a, a marginalized population of people, and we've experienced systems of oppression, that we um, know better, and that we're automatically just conditioned to not um, apply that same type of oppression to others. And that is not the case. We see it all the time across all populations, even within that same population, And we have to talk about it because if we don't talk about it, then we're less inclined to even know that it exists and to less likely to be mindful of how do we combat this? How do we try to unlearn some of the behaviors and the mindsets that has kept us in this place of, of, of straddling that fence and not being truly committed to even checking our own selves, interrogating our own behaviors, thoughts, and habits. And so... I just want to say thank you. Thank you for um uh, for your boldness and mm-hmm. and bringing this information to communities through your book, through your talks. So, thank you.
1: Yeah, well, and and what I'll say also is when you can own our shared history as both victim and victimizer, it actually makes you far more effective at DEI. Great. And, and the reason is because I'm actually not a fan of um the word ally or <laughs> like I think there are acts of allyship but I think I think it gets very problematic when people want to identify they want to base their identity on being a good person whether you you say that by saying I'm an ally or say that by saying I'm Christian it, it gets very complicated because then they people whose identity is hooked on I am a good person have a really hard time taking feedback when they do something harmful
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally agree. So,
1: And if your identity can be based on I am from a history of being both victim and victimizer, that I am a complex human being capable of both, then it becomes easier to, one, you unhook your identity from your behavior. That who you are, like there are, like your behavior can go either way. And who you are is different, right? And that so, to some extent, your behavior reflects who you are. But if you commit, um, a like if you commit a foul, it, you don't throw away your whole self over it.
0: Oh, absolutely, absolutely, right. yeah, absolutely. And that is, um, that is easier said than yeah. done. Easier said than done. I mean, we are, we're probably talking, you know, very common, calm and um, calmly about this, but this is a, um, this is complex on so many different yes. levels. And so um want to move to the practicality, you know, my background yes. says making DEI practical. I'm all about that. We need to, we need to take yes. these topics and demystify them even as, as deep and, and multi-layered as they are. And so I want to get to now that we've named kind of the what, and we've enlightened a lot of us with some, some, some deeper education and knowledge on this. How do we avoid falling into this divide and conquer approach mm. and tactic? What do we do?
1: Yeah. Um, I think, so it's, there's a couple of things. One, for, I mean, one, be aware that like, you're getting played, <laughs> like you are getting yeah. played. Yeah, yeah. Like, listen, like, if you and I have beef that's fine if we have beef because some other white man started it no I'm not I'm not playing that game
0: (laughs) I'm laughing here because uh yes be aware you're being played let's um we don't, I don't want to skirt past this. I mean, that in and of itself should spark some rage. It should yeah. spark some emotion, some anger. Um, and and I feel like sometimes we need all those things to be called to action. But yes, yo, we are. We are being played. And and while we may want to perceive that it's very um unintentional, it's unconscious. Is it really? Is yeah. it really? And I would I would venture to say that. No, this is this is part of and this is why I think there's so much challenge with the separation and the acknowledgement of we're not saying because you have power and privilege that you're bad people. We just want you to interrogate how in which you're leveraging that, how in which you're using that, and how there could be opportunities for you to help create this greater sense of parity all around and equity all around. I just had to lean into that. Be aware you're being played. Okay.
1: I mean, like, listen, like Asians were behind the legal, the lawsuit that overturned affirmative action. Yeah. And I get why. Like, I have my own experience of affirmative action where I was like, what? Like, this makes no sense. Right? Right? Like, the way... There are some ways in which it does not benefit us. And I can acknowledge that. And I can say that I am not going to allow that to be a reason to tear down black people.
0: Right. Right.
1: Right. That like, I can say like, this is problematic. It does not benefit us, but I also am not going to win by stepping on somebody else's neck. Right. Right. And so I'm willing to have a very sophisticated conversation about affirmative action, um, because I think there are there are some problems with it, even though I was not for overturning it. Right. And so I think we need to be able to hold that space of being like, I am not going to be used as your pawn to oppress another group in order for my group to get ahead.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I'm not seeing any hands raised right now, which I'm um, lucky for me because I, I am really tuned into this conversation. I wanna kind of keep driving. But again, if you do have questions, I do wish to share this space. So place them into the chat or use the raise hand feature. Um, how does like power and money and time yeah. you know, intersect with when we're trying to design equitable yeah. organizations and how can we approach these elements um, to really optimize positive, sustainable impact?
1: Yeah, so, so let's start with power. So I, there's a lot of ways in which people frame power. I find the most helpful way is to basically say that no matter what type of power you have, whether it's positional, yeah. informal, social, historical, political, there are two ways of using your power. Yeah. You can use it in a supremacist manner, which is taking more than one share or, and using it to control, dominate, exploit, extract, oppress. Or you can use it in a liberatory manner, mm-hmm. which is using your power to connect, repair, heal, and empower others. Yeah. So when we're talking about organizations and how we design them, we have to ask, how is the organization using its power in all of its decision-making? And that often manifests most easily in money and time. Mm-hmm. Right? Um. Most women have 20 hours of unpaid labor at home, regardless of whether they have children. This is not about being a mom. If motherhood was what was keeping women back from being in leadership, you would see senior leadership teams peppered with child-free women like me, and you don't. That's not the problem. The problem is that women just carry more labor for their families, right? And so when you have promotions and leadership positions that require more than 40 hours of work, you have designed a job that benefits men. Yeah. <laughs> Fundamentally. Yeah. Right? And so, and then on top of it, when you say that you can negotiate a salary, the research has shown that when women negotiate, they are actually, it's not because they lack confidence that they don't negotiate. What happens is they're actually seen as less desirable to work with. Yeah. And I have heard numerous stories of women who have tried to negotiate and companies have come back and rescinded the job offer. Yeah. (laughs) And so what it is, the reason they don't negotiate is because it's an accurate read of the environment that they're in. Mm -hmm. And so if you wanted to use your power for more gender equity, you would simply post non-negotiable salaries on jobs. Because let's be honest, my salary is only limited by my imagination. what you can offer me is limited by your budget right so why would you not just simply be like stop wasting everybody's time and like just be transparent about how much you can afford to pay for this position and make that equitable and and stop the whole facade of negotiation which advantages men men like negotiating more than women and they do not pay the social cost of being seen less desirable to work with 100%. And that's a problem.
0: So I'm glad you're naming it. Yeah. Okay. So we do have a question. This is from Michael Sinclair, and he placed this into the chat Peace. I have a question. Along with racism, nepotism plays a role against equity in the workplace. What role does nepotism play in the hindrance of equity? Oftentimes, workers are denied advancements or promotions due to not being in a clique or in a sexual relationship with one in power. How
1: can this be combated? um yeah that's i I don't think i've ever gotten a question like this before
0: (laughs) i was gonna say yeah michael was thinking today thank you michael for your question
1: (laughs) um i think so i used to really believe because i was an asian kid who was raised to believe that if you study hard and work hard you'll get ahead um that's only half the equation like hard work is important uh the other part of the equation is system support, right? Is the system right. supporting you? Um, but the other part that I was not privy to, being a kid of immigrants, is like leadership culture and the importance of relationships. In in um, you know, leaders are only as good as the relationships with their senior leadership team.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. Now, if somebody's getting promotions due to a sexual relationship, I'm pretty that's, I'm pretty sure that's illegal, if not grossly unethical, right. Um, right? Like, I I don't even know what to say other than you should probably leave that company. Like, I yeah, don't- leave right? the
0: company. Alert all the appropriate officials, yes.
1: Yeah, <laughs> right? Like, I'm pretty sure that's illegal. Um, But if being in a clique, like, I've come around to this. I used to really hate this, like the way people would like favor people they get along with, but if you're a leader, then you need people you can trust. And that comes down to the quality of the relationship. There's a yeah. difference between people who can lead inclusively and have high quality relationships with different people and leaders who only want to be surrounded by people who either think like them or look like them and act like them.
0: Well, oh, That's the whole cultural fit versus cultural ad discussion that continues to come up in these, these topics. But yes.
1: Yeah. yeah. So the quality of those relationships are important. And I would work on the leader to see how can they build trust with people who are different from them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um that's an important question
0: and and so my follow up is do you have some tips, you know, for building <laughs> trust? with people that are different because you're right we as humans we gravitate towards people who are like us and that creates a connection that then fuels trust it fuels a sense of belonging which fuels validation and acceptance and we like it there because it becomes very comfortable but when there's conflict, whether it's healthy or not, sometimes we may not see how healthy it is. We will just perceive it as, I'm not comfortable now, so I need to get out, which means we we lose we lose our propensity to even have a chance of building that rapport and that trust and across difference. And so in all of four minutes, we need you to solve the world around this
1: question. <laughs> so, so I think the best framework for trust building is Brene Brown's f- framework, The Anatomy of Trust. And at Brevity and Wit, we actually even have an inventory that can allow you to rate yourself and your team. Yep. And the most important part, I think, in organizations that are diverse is not simply talking about values, but attaching observable behaviors. Because I know the way Indians define generosity and the way Americans define generosity is very different. And so I need to know, as somebody who's different, when I walk into a company, How does this company define generosity? How does this company define um, reliability, which leads to trust or um, integrity, right? I need the observable behaviors because my cultural upbringing is different than your cultural upbringing. So what I think is like good behavior and what you think is good behavior or trusting behaviors is gonna be different unless we get very explicit about it.
0: Be very explicit about it. Clarity is kind. Clarity is often... Um, a way to avoid resistance, right? Mm -hmm. And unhealthy conflict, not just conflict, but unhealthy conflict, because healthy conflict is good. And so I love the specificity around um, being very clear Mm -hmm. to communicate how those values, to your point, attaches to the behaviors. What does this look like in action? And I think that is a step that many organizations fail to. They will have all of these guiding principles of what they believe in inclusivity and belonging and equity to look like and feel like, but they don't necessarily take it the next step and put it into context of very specific yeah. behaviors and so you're leaving us with so many nuggets i probably could talk with you for another hour or so um that just means we're going to have to invite you back but i have i've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation you know i show up every week and i tell my team this i show up every week with the expectation of imparting knowledge through our platform and through our show and our content as well as receiving knowledge and learning and this is one of those shows i'm walking away from excited to go back and revisit the conversation myself, I'll watch the replay and just to be intentional about taking notes. It's been so rich. I'm going to get your book. I'm going to read your book. Thank you. And I see that some folks in this community are saying, I just ordered the book. I'm going to get the book. And so I hope that you all will certainly uh, get Nino's book and that you will read it and share it out with others. I want to give you our final two minutes to close this out in whatever way that feels appropriate to you. If there's something that I haven't asked you about, which I'm sure is lots of topics that you're feeling a lot of energy around, you know, today um, and you want to just kind of socialize some thoughts, um, please do share that with us and by the way quickly we're going to place actually we have placed um into the link um some resources that you have available and so i hope that you all will take um advantage of that so please close this out
1: yeah so i think just what's sitting on my heart now with like all the news and we're in the holidays um and and a couple of other things that have happened in my life is just to like to really take the time particularly in the winter months to like rest and spend time connecting with people we love. Um, There's a poem by Nikita Gill that said, that starts with everything is on fire, but everyone I know is doing something they love that makes Mm -hmm. the world better. Something Mm -hmm. like, I'm not getting it verbatim. And I think that, um, I think sometimes people in the DEI space have this guilt complex that if they're not working all the time, they're somehow falling short. And I don't think that that's true. And I think we should take the time where the days are shorter and the nights are longer to rest more and to recuperate and to rejuvenate um, because you owe it to yourself and you and you owe it to future generations to teach them how to do this sustainably.
0: Yeah. So why well, am I may not surprised that you would drop another important gem that I wanna unpack right at the top of it? The- <laughs> so- my friends, we're gonna we're gonna be in touch and we're gonna be in community. I have so enjoyed sharing this space with you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you to all of you who have joined us for this conversation. If you found it valuable and useful, then I do encourage you to share it out with others, catch the replay. Um, you know invite folks to check out the podcast when it becomes available which will be soon and we hope to see you back not next week because that's Thanksgiving but the week following. And um, yeah, safe weekend everyone. Thanks so much.